on this episode of the London Lyceum. We talk with Joel Chop about Thomas Aquinas and his usage of scripture and free choice. So we cover all sorts of topics like what does Thomas think about scripture in general? Is he chiefly a philosophical theologian? What would he think of different doctrines like sola scriptura? What is scholastic exegesis, and is this different or distinct from Thomas in any way? Is this different from how we think of exegesis today? What are the Protestant critiques of Thomas's use of Scripture, and are they valid? What does freedom mean, and what does Thomas think about freedom and God? Is God free? Is the world necessary? And much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and we are a podcast and online center that uh, seeks to promote serious thinking for a serious church. And when I say that, I usually try to caveat that with a couple of virtues in mind that we try to say, this is the sort of ethos and intellectual culture we hope to build around this serious thinking. And that is uh, charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. So we think churches need serious thinking. We think that, uh, at least for me and Brandon, who when we started the podcast, we looked around and we said, you know what, oftentimes what happens in our churches is that thinking gets diluted, where we feel like you know, when you, you think about all the different members in your church, you've got a whole range of where they're at in their intellectual development and their understanding of the Christian faith. You have people who are brand new Christians, uh, people who've been Christians for 60 years. And for me and Brandon, what we experienced, at least in our own Baptist context, was the tiers of their development um, may have been there, but all of the content was being delivered at the bottom shelf. So for the brand new Christian. And we think, that's necessary. We need content that's being delivered at that level, but we also need content that's being delivered in the middle and at the top that says, look, there's actually stuff to learn and understand and to grow from. And so that was part of the genesis behind starting the podcast was saying, look, we need all the tiers of intellectual appetite satisfied, including at the top. I don't think we're the top most intellectually robust podcast out there, but we, we do shoot for the the top notch a little bit higher than others. And we don't apologize for that. So if you're new, we try to define things as they come, uh, but we are trying to think more seriously at a high, high level, but we don't want to do it in a way that lacks the traditional concepts of Christian charity. And when we say Christian charity, what don't just mean being nice. I mean, I think it's important to be gentle and kind to one another and how we speak and how we, how we interact with them. But it also means like a fairness uh, towards others, actually understanding what they're saying, listening to where they're coming from and saying, look, I may not agree with you, but I'm going to try to step inside your shoes and understand your argument from your side. I may look at it and say, look, that's an obvious glaring problem. But if people have believed it for hundreds of years, they probably realize that too and have an answer for it. So that's a really long-winded set way of introducing our podcast. And I know you guys don't come to listen to me, so I'll, I'll introduce our guest here today, Dr. Joel Chop. Well, I'm, I pre- preemptively spoke, but I am prophetically speaking at the same yeah, time. I your believe. lips to God's ears. <laughs> <laughs> so I am pumped to talk to Joel. So now, I guess for those of you who are listening after the fact or something, it's probably been conferred by now. But anyway, Joel Chop, I love Joel. I think he's awesome. He is a, a really model thinker, and when I think a cool and good thing to be doing as a Christian is looking at 
different people and different traditions who are outside of your own and saying and pointing them out and saying, look, this is a person who, if you believe these certain things, you should be following this person as a model. Um, they're an exemplary theologian and exemplary have exemplary pastoral sensitivities. And I think of Joel as somebody like that for the Wesleyan tradition. I learn a ton from him and I benefit from him and I know you guys will too. So before we get jump, jump into it and everything, Joel, tell me a little bit about yourself where you've been, your academic journey, those sort of things. And then tell me a little bit, because I mean, we're going to be talking free will, Thomas Aquinas, those sort of things. What was it that drew you to that topic to think deeply about that? Yeah, thanks so much, Jordan. And uh, before we get to any of that, let me just say, I, the mission and vision of the London Lyceum, um, I think, is wonderful. Um, you, What you're after and what you actually accomplish is a genuine good to the church. And not just uh, the corner of the church that you find yourself, but I, I think that you are doing the church service in pursuing cheerful confessionalism um, and engaging outside with figures outside of your tradition in a way that's charitable, rigorous, humble, um, and also uh, engaging in self-critique. Uh, so... Yeah. May your tribe increase uh, as as a Wesleyan looking in from from my tradition to what uh, the London Lyceum is up to. Um, I'm extremely grateful uh, for what you're up to. So, uh, yeah. So a little bit about myself. Um, I was not raised Wesleyan. I was uh, actually raised Lutheran, um, confessional Lutheran background, um, came to Wesleyanism uh, fairly early on in my teenage years. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I, uh, studied pastoral ministry in my undergraduate, um, and then at a Wesleyan school in Cincinnati, and then went on to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, um, which is a kind of pan evangelical school just north of Chicago, um, where I got to study not just Wesleyans, but also, Exemplary theologians in the Reformed tradition, um, Baptist tradition, Anglican tradition, um, and then went on uh, to begin my doctoral studies at the University of Toronto at Wycliffe College, um, where I I still am. Uh, so I've submitted my thesis. Um, so in Canada, dissertations are called theses, uh, like in the UK. So I've start, uh, submitted my thesis uh, and awaiting defense. And yeah, so my thesis is on Thomas Aquinas's use of scripture in his doctrine of divine freedom. Uh, so I, I first got interested in Aquinas actually through the Protestant scholastics. Uh, I was taking a course at um, Trinity on the theology of Jacob Arminius um, and was intrigued by the ways that um, broadly Thomas Thomistic themes shaped and influenced his thought um, and motivated particular theological judgments um, in really, really interesting ways. Uh, so I started reading more Aquinas, uh, and that set me along the path. Um, so, and then um, scripture, the scriptural angle, well, I'm I'm also an evangelical. So uh, evangelicals, if, if they're anything, they're Bible people. And so um, I was interested in the ways that this uh, figure that um, is just massive in the history of Christian tradition 
in the ways in which he engaged with the scriptural text. Um, partly, or even primarily, to just understand what he's doing, um, but then also to see how it shapes his thought and his theology. Um, and so because Aquinas on scripture would have been a massive impossible undertaking, it narrowed it to one specific doctrinal uh, topic, and that was his doctrine of divine freedom. Um, and I've, I've been interested in that because partly it's a contested issue, issue in contemporary uh, Protestant dogmatics to a certain extent. Um, and there are, at least within Protestant theology, um, diverse ways of approaching the doctrine and, and different theological conclusions that, that folks come to. Um, and so I was looking at uh, Aquinas's use of scripture within this doctrine, partly as um, a way to, to think through some of the current debates and mm. uh, get a better sense of the traditional exegetical underpinnings for the doctrine. Excellent. Which is a great methodology. I love, I've found that really useful myself is finding these great thinkers and applying what do they think about this topic to the topic that I'm wrestling with now. And it's really a helpful guide to understanding it. And I think we've got, it seems, everything to make every group mad in our episode here. We can we have Jacob <laughs> hey. Arminius, the reformed <laughs> theologian. We have Thomas Aquinas, the defender of Sola Scriptura. So I'm kidding for all the, well, maybe not on the first part, but maybe the second part. But just having a, a little bit of fun. So those who are listening, don't tune out. I'm just trying to poke fun at everybody, which is which is fun. It's it's good to make fun of yeah. each other. Now, yeah. let's begin. Go that ahead. was my other motivation was I, I wanted to make everyone mad just as I was about to be on the job market. It was <laughs> so I picked the topic. To, <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, sometimes there there are people in the world of academia that like to just be mad at everything. So maybe it's not that bad of a, uh, an idea. <laughs> this is my kind of guy. Okay, Thomas. Uh, and scripture. What What is his thought on scripture in general? So let's just take apart that free will aspect first and just begin with his understanding of how we should treat the text of scripture, um, what he would think of things like sola scriptura, because I mean, obviously that's a little bit anachronistic terminology for him. I think if, I mean, I guess he would know what the, he could read the word, but I don't know all the theological development that goes on with that in the Reformation. He would not have that at hand. So I'm just curious, what, what's he thinking about Scripture in general? Yeah, great question. Great question. Um, well, to answer that question, I think the first thing is I, I'd want to point to the recognition that, that Thomas lived and worked and argued and fought as an Italian Dominican friar in the 13th century. Uh, and so, like, as you, you already noted— um, the question, did Thomas affirm Sola Scriptura, is, uh, in an important sense, anachronistic. Um, the theological developments that led to the Protestant Reformation uh, were downstream of Thomas. And so any sort of judgment we make about what Thomas would or would not have said about the doctrines like Sola Scriptura uh, requires uh, a healthy slice of uh, speculation. Uh, so with that important caveat in place, I, I don't think it's accurate to construe Thomas as some sort of proto-Protestant on the doctrine of uh, Scripture alone. Uh, his view of Scripture, tradition, and the authority of the teaching office of the Church uh, differ in important ways from views typically articulated by Protestants. Um, having said that, 
I don't think that it follows that just because Thomas was not some sort of proto-Protestant on sola scriptura, um, that his views on the truth and authority of scripture are uh, somehow radically at odds with traditional Protestant accounts. Um, Medieval interpreters, Thomas included, affirmed that scripture, in virtue of being a divinely inspired text, is entirely truthful. It's entirely without error, and it exercises a unique authority in theology and in the church. Um, so this is um, this is all over the medieval scholastics. Um, so one place you see this often. So when medieval theologians are are dealing with the doctrine of scripture, there's this quote from Augustine that's that's just all over the place. Uh, Aquinas quotes it. Um, approvingly, and it's from Augustine's letter to Jerome. Um, just going to read it real quick. So Augustine says, I have learned to yield this respect and honor only to the canonical books of Scripture. Of these alone do I most firmly believe that the authors were completely free from error. And if in these writings I'm perplexed by anything, which appears to me opposed to truth, I do not hesitate to suppose that either the manuscript's faulty or the translator has not caught the meaning of what was said, or I myself have failed to understand it. As to all other writings in reading them, however great the superiority of the authors to myself in sanctity and learning, I do not accept their teaching as true on the mere ground of the opinion being held by them, but only because they have succeeded in convincing my judgment of its truth, either by means of these canonical writings themselves, or by arguments addressed to my reason. So Thomas quotes, the, not that entire quote, but portion of it, uh, quotes that approvingly, and Thomas was not a radical outlier in affirming that sort of view. That same quote gets cited approvingly in discussions about Scripture by Robert of Milan, Albert the Great, Henry of Ghent, Thomas Bradwine, it's all over the place. Um, so he held to a, a very high view of Scripture. Um, that is not radically discontinuous with what uh, contemporary Protestants and evangelicals believe. Um, so Scripture for Thomas is divinely inspired, entirely free from error, and um, is uniquely authoritative. And you can see how that view of Scripture actually influences um, both his exegesis and his doctrinal conclusions. Okay, that's that's helpful. And I want to also set the table a little bit and talk about scholastic exegesis, because I think there's a lot of people who have no idea what that term means. Or when you talk about scholastic ex- exegesis, there is a sort of just natural presupposition that scholasticism equals not interested in what the text of scripture says. It's interested in very sophisticated and abstract metaphysical problems. The one that always gets brought up is, you know, how many angels get dance on the head of a pin, which for the record, I think is actually a really important and interesting question. Uh, though when you don't give all the context, obviously it seems like, wow, that's totally useless. But I want to know how do scholastics think about exegesis, does this differ substantially from how Thomas is approaching uh, his engagement with scripture? Um, And how different is that from today as we think about exegesis? 
Yeah. Yeah. Great question. Um, yeah. So I, I think you're completely right. Um, often the, um, particularly among evangelicals and Protestants, there's a standard assumption that Thomas is first and foremost a philosopher, uh, like the rest of the medieval scholastics, and that they, they're fundamentally motivated by abstract philosophical questions. Um, and so when they're doing theology, um, if scripture gets mentioned at all, it's only in service to these purely philosophical um, concerns, and it, scripture gets pressed into this procrustean bed of kind of philosophical logic chopping. Um, so that's um, not accurate. Um, so it, it now uh, I'm going to say a little bit more about this a little later on, but um, evangelicals have largely come to that view. Um, they didn't dream it up out of anywhere. Um, that assessment of what's going on in medieval scholasticism was not just you know, a uniquely evangelical assessment. Um, when you look back at um, earlier texts on the history of biblical interpretation, history of theology that, uh, that were dominant in the 19th and early 20th century, um, that's how scholasticism was portrayed. Um, so it's not like you know evangelicals were uniquely had their head in the sand. Uh, if anything, they were often more sympathetic than some of their mainline Protestant uh, contemporaries. So, so I don't mean to to um, kind of just dismiss this assumption as entirely ignorant. Um, that it was yeah. in the water for a number of years. So, um, so yeah, what is scholastic exegesis, and is Thomas like primarily a, a philosophical theologian? And um, so, the the short answer to the second question is, well, no, actually, his his day job was um, master of the sacred page. Um, his job was primarily to teach and comment on the text of Scripture. Um, so at the University of Paris in the 13th century, um, there were three tasks assigned to someone who held this job. Um, the, so this, this was first laid out by uh, Peter, Peter the Chanter uh, in the, the late 12th century. Um, and so to give you a sense of what these three jobs were, I'm just going to real quick read how Peter the Chanter defined them. Um, so he said, the study of scripture is threefold, reading, disputation, and preaching. Reading is, as it were, the foundation and substrate of all that follows. For through it, the other uses are placed upon it. Disputation is, as it were, the wall in this practice and building, since nothing is clearly understood nor faithfully preached unless it is first chewed on by the tooth of disputation. Preaching, on the other hand, to which the previous are subservient, is, as it were, the roof protecting the faithful from the heat and storm of vice. Thus, after reading scripture and investigating the difficult passages through disputation, and not before we should preach, so that thus one curtain may draw another. So there's these three tasks that he outlines. There's reading, which consists in careful, close, line-by-line -line exposition of the text of Scripture. And this was often carried out uh, at the university in the mornings, followed by disputation, 
which was something else entirely. So often when you're doing this line-by-line -line commentary, you run into a difficult question from the text itself. And it's, it raises interesting, important theological problems. Rather than treating that question as you're going through the line-by-line -line exposition of the literal sense of Scripture, um, it gets kicked to the afternoon activity, disputation. And so in the afternoons, they would hold uh, scholastic disputations that would focus on often, not always, but often, some of the theological problems that the text had raised in the morning lectures. And they would look at differing opinions, differing theological judgments, and they'd, they'd argue about it. They'd dispute about it. And then um, the master would offer a determination, a conclusion, uh, and say, okay, here's the arguments for the pro, here are the arguments for the con, here's the conclusion. Um, and the idea was they were, this activity, this scholarly activity was ordered towards understanding the text that had been read. And that scholarly activity was ordered toward a final scholarly activity, preaching. So you, you not only read the text, you chewed on it through this process of argumentation. So you really, you got to the theological meat of the text and you were able to, and, and I love that picture, right? The, the tooth of disputation. Well, what do you do when you, you're chewing? You're making what went into your mouth digestible. <laughs> and you're, you know, potentially spitting out bones, right? Um, and that is for the purpose of preaching to the faithful. So it's not an end in itself. Um, so that's, that's Thomas's day job. That's what he does. He reads scripture. He interprets scripture. He disputes. And he preaches. So scholastic exegesis involves, in important ways, each of these different activities. And, and this is crucial. When we're, we're asking how, um, how a particular medieval theologian engaged with the text of Scripture, how did you read and interpret Scripture, we need to ask ourselves, well, what, what sort of activity was he doing when he engaged with Scripture? Was it, is it a biblical commentary? which is an analog in some ways to that morning activity, to reading, in which case we can expect um, he's going to be giving us the sense of Scripture. He might engage some of the, the difficult theological questions that are raised, but he might not. He might just note them and keep moving. Um, or is it a, something more analogous to a disputation, like Thomas's Summa? where he's actually engaging the theological questions um, and he's not giving a line-by-line -line commentary. And so often, um, earlier assessments of medieval and scholastic exegesis was not um, overly concerned about distinguishing between these different sorts of genres um, and subsequently came to kind of one-sided perspectives on on what scripture and what engagement with scripture actually looked like in the medieval era. That's, that's a super helpful overview of that. So thank you for walking me through all that. And 
I am curious your thoughts. I mean, you mentioned a little bit at the beginning there how evangelicals are not like dreaming this idea up through, from thin air that scholasticism had some issues. And I wondered, you know, I know Calvin uses that as a pejorative term at times, at least in the English tradition. And I think it, I think it's the French edition or something. He uses a different term than the scholastics. So it seems that he's not talking about the scholastic period in general. He's targeting a specific subsegment of the schoolmen that he would say are being divorced from scriptural exegesis and morality and careful, careful thinking. And I'm wondering, maybe is that part of the reason that us now downstream six, seven centuries later end up misinterpreting and misunderstanding what's going on actually here in the 13th, 14th centuries? Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's a great point. Um, yeah. So, um, kind of in terms of the, the broad assessment of, okay, what, what is, who counts as a scholastic? Uh, what is scholasticism? Because, you know, it's, it's not a, a tiny little hundred year blip kind of on the, the history of Christian theology. It's, it's much larger than that. Um, and so there was a, a standard narrative um, that went something like this. Um, the, with the introduction of Lombard sentences um, to theological curriculum, um, that, that introduction, when, um, in the, when theologians started commenting on the sentences, what that was was a, a deliberate decision to, to not really care about Scripture anymore. And whereas previous generations of theologians, they, they, the, the sole focus was just on Scripture, and that was the text in the classroom, so to speak. And then Lombard comes along, writes the sentences, and poof, that's, that's a liberation from the biblical text. Um, and so um, over the past uh 70 80 years that's that kind of standard narrative has begun to to be questioned well not begun to be questioned it's been overturned for the most part um and we've seen that no that's while in late medieval exegete late medieval theology um you do see less and less priority of uh, scripture kind of in the, the overall theological life of the university, etc. It's late, late that that occurs. And particularly like in the, um, in Thomas Aquinas's era, scripture is all over the place. Um, but, and this is, this is also crucial. How scripture is all over the place is complex and so there's um, there's this really fabulous chapter by James Ginther uh, called "Is There a Text in This Classroom?" and he speaks of um, scripture as a dispersed text in the medieval university. Um, and what he meant by that was he was just pointing to the recognition that the encounter with scripture that medieval theologians um, the ways in which medieval theologians encountered scripture 
was diverse. In in some ways, kind of analogous to to the way that we encounter scripture. So if you think about like, okay, so um, how how do I encounter scripture? Well, suppose I read Oswald Chambers, my utmost first highest this morning. Um, and at the beginning of of each daily reflection in that book, there's a little tiny scripture passage, usually, you know, often a single verse, James four, and then there's a, a short reflection on it. Well, that encounter with Scripture is different in important ways than when, you know, my pastor says, if you have your Bibles, open with me to 1 John chapter 5, or whatever. Um, and, that, and that different encounter shapes how I receive Scripture. It shapes my reception. And that's still different from when I encounter Scripture in my personal private devotions. And that's still different from, suppose, like I'm reading some complex philosophical text, uh, like arguing against, like, it's on the metaphysics of the incarnation. Um, and it's numbered premises and, you know, everything's uh, re really, really complex. And then oh, Luke 22 shows up. Well, that's different than when my pastor says, turn with me to. And so... In, in an analogous way, the way that a, a medieval theologian encounters Scripture is um, diverse. He encounters it when he's reading patristic sources. He encounters it when he's commenting on it. He encounters it in disputations. He encounters it when he's praying the offices of the church. Um, so there's there are diverse ways that Scripture is encountered, and subsequently, diverse ways, and those encounters, they shape the reception of Scripture and what the particular theologian is actually doing with Scripture. So, all that to say, um, it's when we're assessing, okay, what, what was scholastic exegesis? Those differences need to be taken into account. That's very good. Now, I do want to focus a little bit on the freedom aspect now. So, thinking free will. And naturally, let's start with a little bit of ground clearing. When we talk about freedom, what do we mean? When Thomas thinks about freedom, especially in relation to God, what does he mean? You know, is God free? Is the world necessary? Those sort of questions. And I know a lot of our listeners are super into these sort of questions because... There's questions like, especially with divine simplicity, does divine simplicity end up meaning that the world is necessary because it equates God's will with himself? And that's something that seems to be what Thomas would say. So I'm interested in all these fun questions. So we've got a lot of material here to go on. So let's just start freedom and what Thomas thinks about freedom. Yeah, yeah. Great question. Um, so um, interestingly, Thomas does not actually treat the question, what is freedom? Quidsit libertas. Like, which, the reason that's interesting is because it was, in fact, a common question that was treated by his predecessors and contemporaries. Thomas doesn't do it um, for some reason. So Jamie, Jamie Spiring has a really great article on this. It's, I think it's called um, The Silence of St. Thomas or something along those lines. Um, and she suggests that 
that may have been because the term freedom itself is too broad. Um, Thomas isn't that concerned just about the nature of freedom per se. Instead, he talks about freedom from sin or freedom of will or freedom of choice. Um, so he often clarifies. And so he is concerned with those questions and he asks those questions like throughout his corpus. Um, and so that those latter two distinctions, freedom of will and freedom of choice. Um, so that's, that is an important division within um, scholastic accounts of free will. So when we, in contemporary literature, when we talk about free will, um, earlier philosophers and theologians often distinguished between free will or libra voluntas on the one hand and free choice or libra arbitrium. Um, now, so there's some translational issues. Um, arbitrium um, is sticky uh, because the most common translations are uh, either free choice or free judgment. Neither is entirely adequate. Um, but what's, what's important for our purposes is they saw um, free will and free choice as being distinct in important ways. Uh, and so typically the majority of Thomas and his contemporaries saw free Libra Marbitrium as referring to um, choice between opposites, um, power of contrary choice. Um, and so that sort of power, Libra Marbitrium, wasn't compatible with acts done from natural necessity. Um, and this in contrast to free will. Um, so, yeah, the Thomas affirmed that God has Libra Marbitrium. Um, and the reason Thomas affirmed that was, so on Thomas's account, um, the will is the faculty by which an intellectual agent desires, delights, and rests in an apprehended good. So that's, that's a will for Thomas. And God has an intellect and therefore has a will. Yet, so for Thomas, God himself is the summum bonum. He is goodness itself. And because of this, God wills himself from natural necessity. He infinitely desires, delights, and rests in himself as the highest good. So the will is this, this power by which we apprehend a good. Um, and because God is the good himself, um, he wills himself in this sense. In that he desires, delights, and rests in himself as the ultimate good. But, uh, so that raises the question, what about things that are external to himself? Does he will those from necessity? And Thomas says, no, he does not. 
um, that which is external to himself, he does not will from natural necessity. Um, and so it, there's, um, there's a variety of reasons why, so for Thomas, um, something might be willed from necessity. Um, and he, he goes through and he shows why in each case, um, it can't be the case that God wills that which is external to him. He wills creation from natural necessity. Um, so like, for example, um, there's extrinsic necessity, like being subject to coercion. So, um, let's say I hold a gun to your head and I say, Hey, Jordan, um, hand me the keys to your new truck or whatever. Um, I am coercing you and in that sense, you, you, you will to give me your keys. Um, but it's, it's because I'm coercing you. Well, God can't be subject to that necessity because God's omnipotent, right? Um, so it, it's absurd to say that he, he wills creation from, from some sort of coercive necessity. Um, but, um, so there, that's not the only kind of necessity. You, you might will something um, because either your being or your well-being depend on it. So, like, for example, um, I might will uh, to eat dinner. Um, and I will that from natural necessity because of the sort of thing that I am, because of the sort of nature that I have. I'm a human. Humans require, in order to continue going on, to eat food. Um, now, suppose I don't just will to eat food, but I will to eat food that actually tastes good. Well, that's my well-being. Um, and so, because I'm an intellectual agent who's capable of apprehending, you know, diverse goods, I can say, oh, actually, that good, say, um, Lou Malnati's Chicago pizza, uh, rather than, you know, moldy, crusty bread. And so my well-being depends on the best pizza on God's green earth. So I will that from a sort of necessity, right? Well, God, neither God's being nor his well-being depend on anything external to himself. He's the sum and bone. So he can't will creation from that sort of necessity. Um, nor... Like, so there, there are all of these different sorts of reasons why um, an intellectual agent might will something from necessity. And Thomas just goes through line by line. He's like, well, no, in virtue of the sort of thing that God is, he's not subject to these necessities. Um, and so in the same way, because of this, it follows that creation bears... Um, a contingent relation to the divine good. Because God is perfectly happy in himself, because of Thomas's doctrine of divine beatitude, um, it follows that um, God wills creation freely. Creation doesn't add anything to God. So he doesn't, he doesn't will that which is external from himself. Uh, from necessity. And therefore, because of that, God exercises Libra Marbitrium, free choice. So that's kind of Thomas's doctrine of divine freedom in a nutshell.
yeah. and it's it's consistent throughout his corpus. He em- ends up emphasizing different things in different places, um, but as early as the sentences commentary to as, as late as the Summa and, and all of his systematic works, that's that's the gist of where he's at. Yeah, and I mean, I think that makes sense to me, um, that the layering of the different senses of necessity. I think I was reading Francis Turretin, and he sort of uses similar, he has his own taxonomy of necessity where there's hypothetical and absolute senses of necessity where it would it's not absolutely necessary that God creates the world. But I still think there are people who look at that and say, well, that's a, a distinction without a real difference. It still means that creation is necessary because God couldn't have done otherwise. Um, I, and I think the reasoning goes along the lines with, well, if this, if the world's created, which it is, we all, at least unless we're in a simulation, Parker said a case, if you're listening to this, you're the simulation nerd. So you can tell me all about simulation thesis. So let's say this is real because I think it is. Um, God did create. And if God only does the best thing and that's and he goodness itself, then it seems that if the divine will and creation and all, and goodness are all here, then that seems like it's necessary in some sense. Am I making any coherent sense? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that is, so within um, both actually in, in Thomas's day and uh, later, the, uh, particularly later, um, that's kind of the big alternative to Thomas's doctrine of divine freedom. Um, just the recognition, look, God is perfectly good. If God is perfectly good, he always does what is best. Um, he always does what is, uh, he always um, acts on the best reasons. And given the divine nature, if he's perfectly good, then he's he's going to create what is best. And in what sense um, could he do otherwise than create what is best? Um, in which case it looks like God's not free. Well, so... Um, Thomas rejects that there is a best. Um, Thomas's view is that for any possible world in which God creates, there's a better world in some sense. He could have created a better world. And so there is, on Thomas's view, um, an infinite hierarchy of increasingly better worlds. He could have made more good things in the world than he chose to. Um, so um, in one sense, there there could be more essential good essential goodness in a world. There could be more accidental goodness in a particular world. So there's there's a whole bunch of different ways. So he, he spells this out actually most clearly in his sentences commentary. Um, but it, this is also kind of consistent throughout his corpus. So Thomas just denies that there is a best possible world. Um, and so if there's no best possible world, then um, it follows God is under no obligation to create it. So that's, that's Thomas's gambit. Um, and it's, it's also kind of broadly traditional. Um, huh prior to Leibniz and, and really after Leibniz. Um, so um, the it ends up being something of the majority view 
Interesting. And so he's aware of aware of alternative kids' rules. I mean, so Abelard, for example, yeah, upstream of Aquinas, uh, he's not exactly a, a proto Leibnizian or something, but on his perspective, um, in virtue of God's perfect goodness and omniscience, um, he, he couldn't have done otherwise than create the world. Um, mm-hmm. So. Yeah, Thomas is aware of this perspective, and he, he ends up developing arguments for. That's very interesting. So I'm learning all sorts of new things right now. So had no idea this is where we were going, but now now I'm interested and I want to ask a little bit more about it. So it seems to me pretty intuitive to say that God created the best possible world if he's if he's completely good. How does Thomas explain that? How how is it that if God's completely good, he creates something that is not the best possible world. Yeah. Well, I mean, so in the same way that it is um, not a limitation on his omnipotence to uh, create that which is, you know, logically impossible, to be unable to create that which is logically impossible. Basically, Thomas just argues that the notion of a best, and the quick caveat, I, I want to just note that I'm using some terminology and categories a, a hair anachronistically um, because this starts to end up getting fleshed out really, you know, at Leibniz and downstream um, with that. So, you know, the, the hardcore history folks don't, don't ding me on this, but um, so yeah, it, it ends up, um, it ends up uh, being that same sort of thing. Well, no, it's, it, it's, it's no slight on God's goodness or omnipotence um, if the notion of a best possible world is is just impossible. And so actually there's a relatively recent book by uh, philosopher of religion, William Rowe, that gets into these issues. And he actually, um, he makes the argument that that neither Leibniz's move nor Aquinas's move work. And he, he construes it as an argument for atheism, that um, God... Yeah, it's called "Can God Be Free?" and he looks at kind of how, well, on Aquinas' view, you're stuck with this kind of intuitive uh, claim that seems to be at odds with kind of perfect being theology, which is God doesn't do what is best. Like, so it's there's at least a conceivable God that's better than our God, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's this. I mean vast amount of literature and contemporary philosophy of religion that responds to um Rose dilemma and um yeah so it's so it's a live question in philosophy of religion as well that's not primarily uh what I engage with in my in my thesis yeah but, um excellent yeah. well this is all sorts of cool information for me to go track down and learn now which I feel like I'm constantly doing so I do want to focus in a little bit on his interpretation of, of Ephesians one eleven, mm. And I chose that text partly because, I mean, you've got a couple main texts in your thesis, but, and this is one of them, but also because this is a text that when I became a brand new, freshly minted Calvinist was my mm. stronghold of texts mm. that mm. told me I am a Calvinist and I have, see here, all of my Bible, see here, Arminian, you have no Bible. Uh, so just talk to me a little bit about uh, about Thomas's interpretation of Ephesians 1.11. And as you do that, maybe you can show me, does this differ significantly at all from a traditional 
reformed, and by reformed, I mean more Calvinistic sort of leaning uh, thinking of this text? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, great question. Um, so uh, it, it turns out, actually, you know, I, I don't know if I have an Arminian Bible. I, I Maybe the Wesley Study Bible or something like that. But, <laughs> but if I did, I, I'm fairly certain 111, Ephesians 111 will be in there too. Um, maybe we'll be mistranslated <laughs> or something. I don't know. Um, yeah, yeah th so. <laughs> those who are listening, you know, me and Joel are friends, so we, I like to poke fun at him. He pokes fun at me. It's That's true. part of the fun. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah. So what Thomas does with his text is absolutely fascinating. Um, so um, he focuses in on, um, so w when he's treating this text within the context of the divine will and divine freedom and so forth, he focuses in on the, the little construction Counsel of his will. Um, what's that mean? What does counsel mean? Um, and what he does is um, he he picks up and he modifies in interesting, important ways um, Aristotle's account of human actions. So, uh, and specifically human actions that lead to choice. Um, and he. Well, so I'll, I'll explain that real quick. Um, so for Aristotle and also for, for Thomas and, you know, the majority of his contemporaries, they saw properly human acts as divided up into um, logically distinct, not necessarily temporally sequential, logically distinct facets. Um, the first is simple willing. And so that's a desire for an intellectually apprehended good. So you, you, you apprehend some good, and it's that, that pull towards the good. And then there's counsel, which is uh, like the act of deliberation. It's weighing different means to a desired end. So consider I'm hungry. I've got moldy, crusty bread. I've got Lou Malnati's pizza. So the act of counsel is me looking at these differently ap intellectually apprehended goods and weighing the pros and cons for each. So it's this, this act of deliberation. And then following this act of deliberation, you have choice. And it's in light of the act of deliberation. Um, and so human acts, acts of intellectual agents, they're, they're typified by these, these three particular stages. Now, in the 13th century, they actually added a bunch to the three Aristotelian stages, but you know they, they kept all three. They just stuck some different stages in here and there and afterward and stuff. Uh, really interesting developments. Thomas Osborne has a fantastic book on it. Um, so what does it mean for, for God to work all things according to the counsel of his will? Well, on this kind of broadly Aristotelian picture, um, we counsel about contingent things. We deliberate about contingent things, things that we don't do from, from natural necessity. And given you know, everything I said prior, um, for Thomas, he's, he's what Ephesians 1.11 means, it's probably something like this. 
Because scripture all over the place, and not just in Ephesians 1.11, Isaiah 46, Psalm 33, and, and all over the place, talks about the counsel of God's will. Um, well, how do we interpret that? And it ends up being, um, in one sense, it ends up creating a bit of a theological problem because, well, God's omniscient, and he's outside of time. Deliberation, as we experience it, it requires not fully intellectually apprehending what's most desirable. You have to kind of be in ignorance about what's most desirable if you're going to deliberate. It also requires a temporal process, right? So how can counsel be said of God? That seems inappropriate. Well, Thomas felt constrained by Scripture. says, look, Scripture says counsel of his will. So this term must be predicable of God in some sense. Um, and actually, so he's, he's got authoritative precedent to go the other direction, which I think is, is really interesting. So John of Damascus says, no, 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 can't say God counsels. Um, but Thomas says, no, no, it, it, there is a sense in which counsel is predicable of God. Um, and so what he does is he makes this distinction and he distinguishes between uh, counsel as an inquiry, which is this sort of, what we think of as the discursive weighing that depends on ignorance. And then there's this cognitional certitude about the contingent um, things that we're weighing that counsel is, that our inquiry is aiming at. And that's what's predicable of God. And so this ends up being another text that Thomas employs to talk about how we should think about God's will. Because God exercises choice, um, and it's it's choice between options, um, he also has counsel. And he sees this as taught in Scripture. And then he does the hard kind of theological and philosophical work for showing how, okay, this is predicable of God in this sense, but not in this sense. So to your question... Um, how does this, how does Thomas's reading of this text differ from kind of later Reformed reception? Um, the big difference is the all. So, you know, the text reads, uh, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Um, so, you know, whether Omnia or, or Ponta or whatever, what's the scope of the all? Um, within Reformed tradition, they read this text as in, in, inclusive of everything that comes about. You know, so, you know, Westminster, uh, who ordains all whatsoever comes to pass. I think actually Westminster Confession cites Ephesians 111. Um, Thomas doesn't read the all that way. Um, and the reason Thomas doesn't read the all that way is because of his view of... Um, the relation between the divine will and evil. Um, so for Thomas, the all, and, and really he's, he's following kind of interpretive precedent, uh, like in Jerome and company uh, of this text, Thomas doesn't read the all there as referring to all things that occur, including evil, including acts of sin. Um, Thomas denies throughout his career that God wills evil in, in any sense. He permits it. He doesn't will it. And so at least for 
part of the reform tradition. Um, I don't want to say necessarily all, because as you know, the reform tradition is huge and diverse and variegated, and there's different theological judgments within what can be properly called reformed. Um, I think that would be the main distinction between Thomas's reading of this verse and later reformed reception. Yeah, that's that's super helpful. I think what I found uh, is that the the classic phrase that my one of my teachers in undergrad said, "All means all," and that all that's all all means uh, has sort of been busted up because I realized, wait a second. It seems that everybody likes to use that when it's the text that they don't want to describe all means all, and then they just conveniently forget it when it's a text that they, they don't want it. So it's like, oh, wait, you actually have to do more interpretive work than just say, look, there's all. There's a lot more theological judgment that goes into understanding what that means. Last question for you. We've been talking about Thomas. We've been talking about free will. Why should pastors, especially Protestant pastors, because I imagine that's probably the greatest segment of our listeners, why should they care at all about Thomas? Maybe they're sitting here like, I'm tired of hearing the name Thomas Aquinas because people just debate these dumb things I don't care about. Why would you say, no, he still matters, and Protestants should actually care about him, even pastors, they should read his work? Mm. Well, if, if it's any consolation, you know, I'm I'm obviously on team... Aquinas can be helpful, uh, and some of the debates make me uh, feel in a, a, a similar way, like, ah, actually, <laughs> um, I, I'm so tired of, of some of the particular, the way the debates play themselves out in, in the more popular avenues. Um, so why should Thomas, why should Protestants care at all about Aquinas? Um, well, um, first, a couple of reasons why they shouldn't. Um, they should not care about Aquinas uh, if they think that they can go to Aquinas and find an infallible exegete. Um, he wasn't. I think that we can learn a lot from him, um, but some of the Protestant criticisms of Thomas's biblical interpretation, I think, uh, have teeth. Um, a lot of them are bad. Um, a lot of the Protestant criticisms of Aquinas... Um, depend on characters, faulty philosophical assumptions, etc. Some of them are valid. And so um, I think the most valid are some of those that you find kind of early on in the, the Protestant scholastics. Uh, so David Seitzma has a really fabulous chapter in Aquinas Among the Protestants, where he talks about William Whitaker's critiques, well, appreciation and critiques of Thomas's exegesis. Um, and now one of the, one of Whitaker's big critiques is, Thomas follows the Vulgate too often and neglects the, the Greek and Hebrew text too often. And I think that's valid. I, I think that's sound. Uh, yes, he does. Not universally. Thomas is, Thomas is often aware of textual variants. He'll often note them, give kind of answers for each. Um, but uh, he wasn't as animated as later Protestant interpreters were uh, to make sure that the text that they were engaging in exegeting maps onto the original text of Scripture, the original language of Scripture. So that's that's one reason why not to go to Tom, because sometimes he's he's working with a faulty translation. Um, so any sort of retrieval project, I think, needs to attend to that um, and 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 be aware of where the text might be leading Thomas astray. Uh, so a second reason why not to do it. Um, to merely repeat what he said. Um, 
I think we can learn a lot from Thomas, but he was not the summit of theological and exegetical wisdom. Um, he was a summit, I think, in a lot of ways. Um, but um, you do ha- you do him a disservice if you don't also attend to different theological perspectives, different um, theological conclusions, etc. Um, so th- those are two reasons why not to. Reasons why you should care about Aquinas, his scriptural interpretation, his theology. Um, first, <laughs> he was brilliant. Um, and the way that he he thought carefully, closely, systematically about not just what the text was saying, but the theological and the metaphysical implications of what the text were saying and hammering out, um, okay, if I interpret it this way, what are the theological entailments? And then circling back to the text. So you get a, a philosophical robustness to Thomas's exegesis that um, is conceptually rigorous and I think extremely helpful. Um, but then also, and again, this is attending to the different genres of text. Um, I think frequently he he's enormously clear on complex theological issues. Um, and so if you're wrestling with, um, in your sermon, let's say you're working through John 1 and you're preaching a sermon on John 1 and you want to you want to preach it faithfully. You, you want to do justice to this rich theological text. Um, go pick up Aquinas' commentary on John. And there are huge, rich resources there, just in your sermon preparation. Don't go and quote them all throughout your sermon. But as you wrestle with the text, um, I think he, he's enormously valuable. For, for working through those in the actual, like, the, the meat of pastoral ministry. Man, that, that's superb, helpful, concise, and you, you've done it all here for us. So thanks, Joel. This has been a, a real delight and pleasure to have you on the show to talk about all these things. Obviously, there's a ton more we can cover. So for those who want to cover more, are there places they can go to follow you? And keep up with your work. Yeah. Uh, so I am on Twitter. Um, just Joel Chop. J-O-E-L-C-H-O-P-P is the handle. Um, I'm also on Humanities Commons, which is um, something of a alternative to academia.edu. I post some of my stuff on there. Um, I think those are probably... Are they an alternative because they don't spam you with emails? They, that is one of the reasons they're an alternative. <laughs> uh, so I'm... Uh, um, I'm a fan of that place. Unfortunately, there aren't many folks on there uh, in the same way that Academia. It seems like I'm technically on Academia too, but because they spam you with emails, I don't like to hype that too much. But yeah, so those are are two places. Very cool. Well, thanks, Joel, man. This has been really awesome. And I do encourage all of our listeners, you got to check out Joel's stuff. Uh, He is insightful, he's careful, and he is doing it in a spirit that we want to say, yes, we cheer you on. We need healthy, strong, wise individuals in all of our Protestant traditions. And I think Joel is one of those people. So I'm always wanting to encourage and uplift his work. 
uh, to our li- all all of our listeners. You should definitely check it out. Keep up with them. And if you ever get the chance, you should meet him because he's freaking awesome. So hey. everybody's been listening. Thanks for tuning in. This is the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.